my sermon today. Oh, I'm on. Uh, <laughs> is the murder of Christ. The murder of Christ. And as we've seen in our text today, as we've read through it once, we see that Judas finds himself to be, by and large, the center of the focus of our text today. But we also see that although Judas maybe is the center of attention in a lot of the text, there are actually three actors present in the event described here. We see the chief priests and the scribes, we see Judas, and we see Satan. And each of these three actors plays a key role in the drama that takes place over the next few days in the life of Jesus. And much like the murder on the Orient Express, each one of these individuals is culpable and is guilty of the murder of Christ. So as we seek to kind of handle and study this text today, I want us to take some time and look at each of the individuals, each of the actors in this story individually. So point number one, the first characters in our story are the donors, which are the chief priests and the scribes. These are the ones that are funding, that are, are the supporters uh, of this plot, of this murderous plan to take Jesus out. And if you've been here, if you've listened to our sermons over the past month or two, then you've probably heard us explain uh, a couple times kind of who these individuals are. You probably have a good idea of these characters and who they are. And so I'm not going to rehash all of those uh, same details out. But what I am going to say and, and reiterate is that these men hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. They were willing to fund and support and bring about this plot to have Jesus murdered. Their hatred of him is so severe, and it's sufficient to say that these men loved and clung to their power and saw Jesus as a threat to that power. Therefore, they hated him, and they have been plotting against him for some time now. These guys basically are to Jesus what Wile E. Coyote is to the Roadrunner, if you're familiar with old Cartoon Network cartoons. The Roadrunner is a character on those cartoons, and, and Wile E. Coyote is this enemy who's always after the Roadrunner, wanting to try and eat him. And time and time again, this Roadrunner who's always trying to take out, or this Wile E. Coyote who's always trying to take out the Roadrunner comes up with all these crazy schemes to try and get him. And if you, if you watched them, some of his schemes, honestly, to me, almost seem foolproof. Like, there's no way this could go wrong. Like, when he puts up a canvas on the edge of a cliff where the road ends and, like, paints it and it looks perfect like the road, and the roadrunner runs and runs just into the canvas and has gone around the corner. And it's like, what? How'd that happen? It seemed foolproof to me. But then Wiley Coyote goes to run through it and falls down uh, thousands and thousands of feet. But ultimately, this is the way it kind of is with the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and Jesus, they've been after him for some time. They've attempted to take him down previously already. They've tried to trap him in his words or discredit him to, the Roman, to get the Roman authorities to silence him. And time and time again, their schemes fell short and in many cases ended up backfiring on them and, and failed to come to fruition. They also sought to stone him when he claimed the name of Yahweh in Romans chapter 8 when Jesus Christ himself take on take himself takes on the name I am and applies it to himself. But through all of this, all of their attempts to take Jesus down, all of their attempts to uh, what they would say is defend the honor of God, right? Because they thought Jesus was a blasphemer when he claimed the name of Christ. That was to them blasphemy. 
But through all of this, really their hypocrisy is on full display. The hypocrisy of these rulers is clear to see. Their true motivations were rooted in their own sinful desires. But that is not what they would have said. That's not what they would have the people believe. They would have the people believe that their desire is to protect the name of Yahweh, that he is the one true God, and if anyone were to blaspheme his name, they ought to be punished. Defending the honor of Yahweh, essentially. But all you really have to do is consider what is said of this group at the end of verse 2 in our text today, where Luke tells us that they feared the people. Consider this. If these Jewish leaders were actual devout lovers and true worshipers of God, would they really let fear of the people keep them from taking action against one whom they believed was a blasphemer, who was grossly blaspheming the name of Yahweh? Even that kind of exposes their hearts and their desire for power and to be loved and respected by the people more than their desire to honor God. Because even in their understanding of what Jesus had done, he had committed blasphemy, yet they were unwilling to take action for they feared the people. Their true motivations had nothing to do with being zealous for God's righteousness or protecting his name or defending the faith that they clung to, defending the scriptures that they loved. Their motivations were were clear. They feared man and desired respect and power more than they desired God. This fear of man that crippled them showed what their true motivations was and it was rooted in a love of power and status. Exhibit B, illustrating the wickedness of of these men was in their glee when they found one who would betray Jesus. Our text tells us that these men were happy. They were glad to pay Judas money to commit Jesus uh, to arrest and ultimately to his death. Not only were these men treacherous in their own right, but they were also happy and rejoiced in the treachery of others. It's much like what Paul says at the end of Romans, that they not only practiced such things, but gave approval of those who practiced such things. Ultimately, these men were wicked men who after being given the blessing of access to the revelation of God in the scriptures, they had become agents of the devil in order to put to death the very Messiah that they had been promised in the scriptures that they claimed allegiance to. I mean, think about that. These men were experts in Jewish law, most of them. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They knew what the Old Testament prophets prophets had prophesied. They knew the words of the coming Messiah. They knew all of this. They had greater access to the revelation of God than anyone else on earth because they had the Old Testament scriptures. And yet all of that, in spite of all of that, they abandoned that and put to death the Son of God, the Messiah, that those very scriptures prophesied of. It was a tragedy. These men were donors in this terrible and despicable scheme. They were the ones backing, the ones funding the operation. But as we know from our text, they were not the only ones in this plot. They were not the only actors. But point number two, we see that there was also the defector, Judas, the son of of perdition. Nobody likes traitors, right? Every single one of us 
just down to our core, has an instinct in which we can't stand and hate someone who is a traitor, someone who betrays a friend or a loved one. Every single one of us despises that person. I mean, just think about movies that portray someone who is a betrayer or a traitor. We hate that person. If you watch a movie and there's someone who's like, but you know it's coming, like they're going to betray this person. I've seen this movie before. Don't you kind of like hate that person the whole time, right? Just recently, me and my wife watched the movie Iron Man. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm seeing Jeff Bridges' character, uh, this guy who is like Tony's friend, mentor, almost kind of a father figure to him, and ends up being the bad guy, right? Sorry, another spoiler if you haven't watched Iron Man. But it's, you watch that movie and knowing that's coming and you just can't stand that guy. Yeah, he seems pretty nice. Yeah, he's being good to Tony, kind of, sort of, but you can't stand him, hate him. I don't even have to mention Prince Hans of the Southern Isle, right? Nobody likes that guy. There's a reason that treason is a crime punishable by death here in the United States. Even still to this day, treason is a crime punishable by death. And here we have in our text, in this story, the man that is probably the most famous and tragic example of betrayal that the world has ever seen. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He was selected by God to be an up-close witness to the amazing ministry of Christ, the healings, the teaching, the casting out of demons, even the raising of Lazarus. Judas was by Jesus' side for all of that. And yet, when an opportunity presented itself to Judas to take some money at the expense of Christ, he chose his greed over his teacher. He made money his God instead of worshiping God incarnate, who he had the privilege of walking with and sitting next to and, and seeing his miracles done. Yet his heart was dark and hard, and ultimately he chose his own greed over the Messiah. Though Luke doesn't record it, we know from Matthew that the price that Judas was paid for betraying Jesus, for turning him over, was 30 pieces of silver. Now, to some in this time, it might have seemed like a lot of money that was paid to Judas. It's estimated by scholars that the amount paid to Judas came out to probably about 120 denarii. And if you know anything about a denarii, one denarii is about a day's wage. So this comes out to, for an average worker, about six months' worth of wages. That seems like a lot. But it doesn't seem like all that much when you consider that that same price was roughly the price of a slave in that day. This traitor, Judas, had just sold the Messiah, the Son of God, for the price of a slave. This magnifies two things. It first of all magnifies the wickedness of Judah and his absolute love of money, that this is all it took to sell out the Son of God, Jesus Christ, just the, the price of a slave. But also, it magnifies even more greatly the humility of Christ that Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ took on the form of a servant or the form of a slave. Nowhere has that statement been more realized than this instant 
when Christ has now been sold to his enemies for the cost of a slave. And Judas makes this terrible transaction in this instance. He's living up to the name that Jesus gives him when he calls him the son of perdition or the son of destruction in John 17 during his high priestly prayer. In this prayer in John, Jesus is praying for the disciples, for the 12. And he says that none of them has been lost except the son of perdition or the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Judas was now living up to that name. The phrase son of perdition means one who is destined for destruction or in an unredeemable state. You see, in the same way that Christians in 2 Peter are called to confirm our calling and our election, Judas, in this instance, was confirming his title of the son of destruction. He was confirming his reprobation and betraying and turning over Jesus Christ to be murdered. And yet, Jewish and these Jewish leaders did not act alone in this plot. We see our third character, the mastermind. Even more so than the priests and the scribes, Satan himself had been wanting Jesus defeated and destroyed. Ever since the testing in the wilderness, where he had failed to bring Christ down, the the Bible tells us in Luke that he had been waiting for the right opportunity waiting for an opportunity to put his plan into action, to use the tools at his disposal, and that time had now come. This was Satan's opportunity. He saw the tools he needed that were in place, and he took action in order to murder Jesus, the Son of God. I've called Satan the mastermind at this point because although the chief priests and Judas were the physical actors in the plot to kill Jesus, What is happening here in God's word, in our story, in this true story, what is happening here is far more than merely physical. But there's a spiritual aspect to what is happening, what is taking place here as well. This is where Satan is operating. He is operating in the spiritual realm. He is operating behind the scenes, influencing and working to accomplish his plan to kill Jesus, whom he hated seriously. I think we as Christians sometimes are easy to forget the fact that there is a spiritual realm, that there are spiritual realities at work all around us. We talk and act as though these spiritual forces are not present and active all around us, and I think this is a mistake. I think it is good for Christians to recognize and identify the fact that spiritual forces are at work in this world, even though we can't see them. There are spiritual forces at work in this world all around us. And though we can't see them with our eyes, they are just as real as the things that we can see and the things that we can touch. And as Christians, we have to realize this and be aware of it. I was uh, talking with, uh, with my brother just the other day about um, issues regarding New Age religion and, and the, the kind of cult uh, that is the New Age cult. And how many of these New Age practices have found their way even into the church. And I think a part of why they have is because the church, by and large, has become ignorant to spiritual realities. Things that seem totally innocuous to us 
yet have serious ramifications because of the spiritual aspect of them. This statement in verse 3 of our text demonstrates this, and it's absolutely fascinating. We see in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas. There are some who have claimed that Judas here in this instance was somehow possessed by Satan, was somehow possessed by the devil. And that might be the case. It might very well be the case that, that he was in one sense possessed by Satan himself. It could be that in order to carry out this task, Satan at this time entered into and possessed Judas to carry it out. But it definitely was not necessary that Satan possess him in order to bring this about. Why? Because Judas was already counted among the enemy's camp. Judas, being an unregenerate, lost man, was already a servant of Satan, the same way all who are lost are. Every person in the world who is lost is a servant of Satan. Every single person. Through this whole event, Satan is working with the pawns that he has at his beckoning. All of these unbelievers, even though the text specifically describes Satan entering Judas, be assured that Satan was also at work in the hearts of these religious leaders, of these Jews. Satan was also at work in the heart of Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers who hung Jesus on the cross. Without a doubt, Satan, the ruler of this world, the one Paul in Ephesians calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He was instrumental in the plot to murder Jesus. And he is, in some sense, guilty. And yet, even Satan is not the final actor. So my last point is the question, who murdered Jesus? I mentioned in the introduction that there are three main actors depicted in our text here today, but there is more to the question of who murdered Jesus. You could easily and correctly assume and conclude from our text today that the Jews murdered Jesus. These chief priests and scribes, they were the representative of the Jewish elites, a system that was broken and flawed, a religious tradition that rejected its own promised Messiah. Their hatred of Jesus drove them to act by means of Judas the betrayer in order to have him taken out. They were guilty of murdering Jesus. That is a correct conclusion. You could also correctly conclude that the Romans, these Gentiles, murdered Jesus. After all, Jesus was, was sentenced by Pontius Pilate, a Gentile, representing a, uh, a foreign ruler, being Herod. He was executed by Roman methods at the hand of Roman soldiers on a Roman cross. Therefore, the Gentiles, the Romans, are just as culpable for Jesus' death as the Jews are. Satan, being the mastermind, the ruler of the wicked hearts of the men involved, was also guilty, as was Judas, who bore guilt and responsibility for the murder of his teacher, his friend, Jesus. But like the murderer on the Orient Express, they are all guilty of murdering Jesus, and yet there is one more agent involved in the murder of Jesus, and that is God the Father. Behind and above all the actors involved stands the all-powerful God who sovereignly ordains and decrees all that comes to pass. And that includes this most horrific act of the murder of his 
son. This is a statement that I do not make lightly, but one that I want to make carefully and humbly, yet one that I think we can make with confidence based on what God's word has told us. Scripture says that God plays a role in ordaining all things, including such atrocities as this. These are acts that he neither committed nor coerced, but that he has sovereignly decreed and ordained. Just consider Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28, when the believers in the early church prayed for boldness. This is what they say. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that Pontius Pilate, that Herod, that the Gentiles and that the people of Israel did to Jesus, every single bit of that was a part of what God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. This includes even the evil atrocities of murdering Jesus. All of this was a part of what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. We can't get around this. Even Isaiah 53, the prophet, speaking of the coming Messiah, says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Earlier on, he says that Christ was smitten, not by God, or not by man, but by God. Smitten by God. All of these evil things that came to pass were a part of the immutable, perfect will of God in order to bring about his plan of redemption for his elect. Why is it that I'm making this point, though? What does it profit the Christian to know that God planned and ordained that his only begotten son should die a brutal death on the cross? Well, I would give you at least two reasons. I would say, one, first of all, because Scripture itself tells us, therefore it matters. We have to be careful not to shy away from those passages in Scripture which cause, us, our, cause our stomach to turn or cause us to feel uncomfortable. While at the same time, we must not overemphasize one specific doctrine to the neglect of another. But even keeping that balance in mind, we must accept all that God's Word teaches us and recognize that if God's Word has said it, then it matters. It matters for us. This understanding of the sovereignty of God over evil matters, if for no other reason than because God has said it's true in his word. Therefore, it matters. But secondly, I say that this matters, this is important, we should learn this and hear this and accept this, because I want to encourage our hearts with this truth on the front end of the story of Christ's death. Because over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of move in past Christmas after our Advent series. But over the next few weeks as we preach through this passage, we are going to see the tragic story of Jesus' death on the cross unfolding at the hands of wicked men. And I want each and every one of us to have snug, to have rooted in our mind the fact that none of this is outside of God's sovereign plan. In fact, each aspect of this event taking place 
is according to the plan and the hand of God. That's exactly what the book of Acts tells us. That each and every aspect of what happens in the death of Christ is a part of the plan and the hand of God. God has not only ordained the means that would come, or the ends that would come, excuse me, but he has also ordained the means of how it would happen, namely the death of his son. In his sovereignty, God is going to bring about the greatest good from the greatest act of evil that has ever been perpetrated. We must remember this. John chapter 11, verses 50 through 53, helps make this point clear. This is the Jewish leaders who are saying this, who are having this discussion about how they can take Jesus down and listen to what it says. John eleven fifty through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is a fascinating preview, a fascinating picture of how it is that God sovereignly works, that even Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, was saying, it's better for Jesus, for one man to die, than for the whole nation to go down, the whole nation to Paris. In his mind, what's he thinking? He's thinking, it's better for our standing with the Roman government if we just kill this man. That way he doesn't threaten both the standing of the Jewish nation, but also by default our standing. It's better that he should die than the nation should be in jeopardy of losing its status to the Roman government. And yet it was a prophecy that he spoke. Because even in saying this, he was recognizing the reality that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but to gather together and one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Even in his unknowing prophecy, Caiaphas, the high priest, was prophesying of the redeeming aspect of what God was going to do through Christ's death. God's plan was there all along, and every bit of it went according to the plan and the decrees and the ordination of God. Even though the actors in this tragic story were perpetuating an evil, wicked, terrible act against the Savior of the world, and they were doing so out of the wickedness of their own hearts and by the direction of the devil himself, God in his sovereignty was bringing about his good purposes, which, we, which he had decreed and ordained from eternity's past. Even as these men were committing evil, wicked acts from their sinful, wicked, dead hearts, God was working out his beautiful and good and right plan of redemption. My desire through this message today is that you would be filled with hope. As you face evil, as you face difficulties, as you face suffering, remember that God has ordained all of it according to his plan and his purpose for his glory. And also that the same sovereign God, the author and worker of your salvation, will keep you to the end. 
If God ordained the use of the crucifixion for such good purposes, then you can trust that the bad things, the hard times that you face in your life are all under his sovereign and good control. They are all according to what his hand and his plan has predestined. And they will serve for your good, as Romans chapter 8, verse 28 reminds us. Some of the passages ahead of us as we teach through the last days of Jesus' life, they get really, really sad and really, really evil. And we're going to be reminded at the end of this hope again. But as we read it, remember the good news that you've heard today, that all of this, every evil act that we see in this text and every evil act that we see in the world around us is all a part of God's sovereign plan to bring about his glory and to bring about our good. I wish I could stand up here in front of you and explain to you how every evil thing that happens in the world is going to serve some good, but I can't. I can't stand up here and explain to you word for word every evil act that happens. Here's why it happened and what is going to come that is good for you and that is going to glorify God. I can't do that. I can with some things. We all can, right? We can see how God has worked things out for our good and for his glory in our lives, even through the bad things that have happened. But one thing I can say with certainty is that he will work it for your good and for his glory. There has never been more evil an act perpetrated on this earth than the crucifixion, the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in that, there has never been a greater good that has come about, namely the redemption of the world. Nothing evil that is happening to you or in your life is going to top that. And therefore, none of it is going to be out of God's control and apart from his plan for your good and for his glory. So church, take hope in that. Take hope in that both as we read the next few passages over the coming weeks and months, but take heart as you live your life this week, this month, going forward. Evil is all around us in this world, both physical and spiritual. And all of that, both spiritual and physical, is under God's sovereign control. There's nothing that Satan did in his great power, and Satan is powerful. There's nothing that he did behind the scenes acting in the spiritual realm that was outside of God's control. Even he was playing his role that God had ordained that he play. Every single aspect of what happens in this world, spiritual, physical, it is all a part of God's good plan. Trust in that. Let's pray.